Welcome back to Where Others Won't and volume three of the Tough Stuff series, where I'm exploring the hard parts of the head coaching discipline. On this episode, a sport we haven't covered yet, curling. Peyer Lindholm is one of the greatest curlers of his generation, capturing three world titles as skip of the Swedish men's team. Turning his attention to coaching, Peyer spent nine years as Swedish team head coach, guiding his home country to a further four world titles and an Olympic medal. Now he's taken on a completely new challenge, coaching up-and-coming nation, China. I hope you enjoy this conversation with curling legend, Peyer Lindholm. Lindholm, how are you? I'm very fine. Busy here in Beijing, but uh, enjoying my days. Fantastic. I think you're the first uh, person in China that we've had on the show. Uh, and obviously, like a natural connection, right? A Swedish curling coach in, in China and an Australian uh, Aussie rules coach in Canada. That's uh, a natural, yeah. <laughs> natural fit. A global world. <laughs> It is indeed. Uh, no, I'm, I'm delighted that you're on the show and that you were interested in coming on. And we owe uh, Peter Dubora a shout out and a thank you for connecting us um, down in New Zealand. Um, we're going to talk coaching, which we're, we're both super passionate about and, and uh, right in the middle of. And I'm curious to hear a little bit more about your journey as well. But how I'm starting all of these shows is asking everyone when i say the tough stuff about coaching where does your mind go without me prompting you the tough stuff to have not coachable uh, athletes mm. for sure that it is uh, indeed what comes in my mind because uh, if uh, the players aren't really ready to do the work or understand or would like to listen to the coaches then it's like almost impossible so for me, it's so uh, important to find uh, that uh, they are coachable because then we can start a journey together. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we'll, we'll backtrack in a minute, but talk to us about your kind of involvement in that because you were a, uh, you're a legendary player in, in curling um, and then you've had success as a coach as well and kind of as you've moved up the coaching ranks to take on more and more responsibility there. But how, how do you find other players, other curlers have interacted with you given that you, you, know, you have quite a high profile in terms of that coachability? So do you think that that helps them buy in, having someone like you that's been there and won world championships before? Yeah, I think so because... Because uh, then they know what, uh, what I'm talking about. Uh, I have experienced that myself. And all the experience that I have, uh, I can like, uh, let them know in advance uh, when, how it uh, will be when coming to the first World Championship, for example, and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And then uh, it was good for me to, to get away from the sport for two years after I retired. So I got some distance. I was actually working as a performance coach for seven different sports. And that helped me a lot. So once I got back again, uh, I believe that uh, the players I met, uh, they like to work with me. So it was pretty easy for me to start directly with them. I'm going to grab onto that. Tell us about that time coaching seven different sports and, and being a performance coach after you retired. Uh, do you mean how it was for me? Like yeah, well, yeah, yeah. How did you get into it? And then how did you find kind of adapting to the, the different sports and uh, learning about them and then coaching in that world? Yeah, I just loved it, I must say. Both, it was both the individual sports like Alpine and the team sports like uh, soccer. And uh, I really liked it and it helped me a lot. And uh, what I was doing with them uh, was more like 
to make sure they were ready for the performance and what it would take for them to reach the goals. Because we can see so many times that uh, so many athletes say, oh, this is my goal. And then when I'm trying on the deep to make them understand, okay, how will the journey from now to reach a goal? How does that, uh, how is that for you? And uh, what are you willing to pay for it? And they don't really, some of them, they didn't really know what I was talking about. Uh, and then I'm trying to some, had some more uh, questions to them. And then they realized, wow, it's not that easy to reach a goal. So I need to put in a lot of effort myself. So that's very interesting. And actually, some of them decided to quit because they realized they weren't really ready to put a lot of costs in for that. And mm-hmm. uh, so that's good for them too, because then uh, they don't they need to waste all that time. Then can, they can do something else instead that are more important for them. But most of them, I hope I help them uh, achieving their goals. Yeah. Now you raise a good point. I think a lot of professional athletes feel a little bit stuck in that they, they might've had talent early on and they almost feel forced into uh, continuing on with it and, and they they actually don't quit um so kudos to to the athletes that you're working with that did in that that it's not really their passion in life i think um again they're all good athletically um and, and just kind of feel stuck in that world and, and don't know what else to do or, or don't feel confident that they have other skills but they often have uh, very good skills in another discipline music or sales or or something um, yeah, yeah exactly they, yeah but they do feel stuck yeah let's backtrack a little bit i uh most of well a third of my audience are in australia and then uh you won't need to explain curling to to the north american audience but uh maybe the uk and ireland a little bit but let's let's go back to your sport because to Canadians, it's primetime television and outside of hockey, the, the number one sport in this country it doesn't need an introduction and you don't need an introduction. But to my brethren down in Australia, uh, maybe a little bit. So just tell us about the, the world circuit, the Olympics, how it all fits together in curling and then a little bit about the sport itself and how it all works. Yeah, so we uh, can say like, yeah, well, first of all, the, we have di- different disciplines uh, in curling, mixed double and regular team curling. Mixed double is uh, one women and one men uh, playing and uh, regular games that is like four men or four women in a team. And, uh, well, it's a game on night, uh, they call, uh, so, well, that's about it. And you're playing... Uh, most often, uh, one game is consists of uh, ten ends. So, all well, that's about a little intro about the sport itself. And then it's like uh, when uh, curling was an Olympic uh, uh, cycle again uh, back in '98 in Nagano, in Japan. That changed the sport a lot, I would say, because it used to be like a couple of guys together, more or less. Uh, well played and um, no big sponsors or anything. But once we were an Olympic sport, then the, all the, the Olympic committees in each country decided to, to help the curling as a sport to grow. And that was very, very good for us. So now it's a very professional sport um, for the top teams in the world. And you can also see the gap from the, the top teams down to, to the other it has increased and that's that's bad i must say uh, because for example in sweden uh, the, the best men and women team there they can't almost lose a game i must say because they are well, full professional and the other yeah. teams they need to have jobs and stuff yeah and so talk to me about that dynamic in coaching as well like how has the coaching profession advanced as the game has become more advanced because when you were playing you i don't know did you did you even have coaches or did you just kind of roll around with the skip but how did that yeah yeah we we were pretty early to have a coach yeah the 
the, the teams that are not really, really professional, but they, they have a coach. It's more like uh, that role is like a team manager or something. They can uh, make bookings or stuff like that. They're not really working in a professional way, I must say. And uh, then uh, I would say like uh, countries that are pretty new in curling, like in Asia, um, once it got an Olympic sport, then they hire in more professional coaches. And then they would go back like to Canada, to Sweden, Scotland. Uh, they also started then with the professional coaches. So it changed a lot over the years, I must say. Mm-hmm. And so uh, what we've also seen in curling is the that kind of, well, I guess you call it like hyper growth in big, big countries, so the United States and China, where you are now as well, where it tended to be played by Scandinavian countries, Canada. Um, You know, we mentioned Pete earlier, like New Zealand, Um, whereas now it it seems to be growing almost exponentially also on the back of big countries joining that that group of countries that are involved at the international level. Mm. Yeah. And so for you in china like what has what's your task now um so you've you've had an amazing stint with sweden both as a player and as a coach um, for the men and the women and then taking that new role and that new challenge with china to grow the game there yeah it was very interesting and i was surprised myself that i have this uh, position now because (laughs) i Uh, because I really like my job in Sweden and uh, I'm very, very goal-driven and uh, we have fantastic uh, teams in Sweden and they do most of the work by themselves. Uh, But uh, like last year when I was uh, the the national coach in Sweden, uh, we were ranked number one in the world, both men and women. And as I said, we had two fantastic teams. And then it was like for me, I felt good. Then I was like in harmony. (laughs) <laughs> but also I realized now I've been doing this for 10 years and I can't, I achieve the goals that I had for myself with this too. And then when I got this offer from China, it was like, yes, I really would like to do that because I can see that they have potential and I believe I'm good to, in building uh, programs for national teams. So my task is like, I'm a, or, in charge of like everything here to set up the program and uh, we have a lot of uh, staff here and uh, they don't really work in the beginning they didn't really work together we had doctors uh, physios uh, snc coaches etc but it was more they were doing their job they weren't really working uh, as a team and then uh, i so I presented an organization uh, chart for them and uh, I said I would like to hire three head coaches that live in Beijing full time one for men and women and mixed double so I found that I have well I have contacts all over the world so I hired another Swedish guy and a Finnish guy plus an Italian guy so they like uh, take care of the daily training and everything. So they are the head coach for them. And I coordinate this and work very closely to the head coaches. So that's, uh, I usually say also that uh, the head coaches, they should look more on the players. And my job is to stand next to the head coaches, but I will look more out uh, from the players, taking care of media, politicians, uh, decision makers, etc. And that works good. Mm-hmm. And is, is that what really captivates you about coaching in general is those setting up of those systems? Because I, I, I do defer that way as well. I, I really like the machine to work well. And once the machine works well, then it, it, it allows everything else to, to really work, work well underneath it. Absolutely, because mm. if uh, the machine doesn't work well, then uh, your chances to uh, reach uh, your goals with the players uh, is, isn't optimal. So it's very, very important to make all that uh, job uh, before starting the, the coaching 
performance. I'm going to be deliberately naive here a little bit and, and dive into this with you. Tell us what a curling head coach does. How, how do they interact? What do they teach? Like you mentioned S&C earlier, that might even uh, interest some people about like how do you uh, build strength and, and conditioning for a, a curler? We, uh, we train, uh, I always like to work in blocks, like different periods. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, this uh, period now, uh, we have a, a focus on the SNC. So, we're going to make some new physical tests November 16 and 17. And, and most of the time, like every week, the players uh, train 30 hours per week. And now, since we are in SNC focus, most uh, of the hours are in the SNC and less on the ice training. Uh, we also have an external running program. So uh, we have a running coach with us uh, outside the program, really. So he takes, mm-hmm. we're going to the university for the track and field here in Beijing twice. Uh, we have blocks. Uh, so the each block consists of the four days and the fifth day is like a resting day or while well, taking care of rehab or whatever. Mm-hmm. So twice uh, per block, yeah, we are in, in the track and field and then they have two other uh, running sessions uh, as well. Then we have the, well, being in the gym, like five uh, sessions uh, two per block. And then we have the curling in there too. So it's a lot actually. And it's also important that uh, when we are like playing the competitions, we need to maintain the SNC level because it's so easy to forget about the the SNC when they have the competitions. So we, I can see uh, when I played myself that uh, I started to play not as good as I could because uh, I didn't uh, catch up with my SNC, so my performance dropped and also to reduce the injuries. So we're working very, very hard with the SNC, I must say. And each program, I said men, women, and mixed double, they have an SNC coach each, and then we have a doctor and a physiotherapist. And we had two meetings per block for each program that we gather all the staff and discuss each athlete. How is the status now? Uh, is uh, is that player injured or not? And we set up a good uh, plan, both for uh, rehab and SNC. And so, what what would happen, like you were describing to you, where maybe your your strength and or your conditioning weren't at their optimum, or or even one of your players now? What would happen to them throughout a tournament um, that would affect their performance? Uh, how do you mean? So if they were fatigued um, mm. at, towards the end of a tournament and, and weren't able to yeah, maintain their physical performance, like how would their play be affected? Uh, first of all, uh, we have different roles in the team, but uh, let's take, for example, the skip uh, that uh, are in charge of the, the tactical well, stuff. Uh, if uh, the skip is fatigued, uh, the skip will most likely make some bad decisions, and especially uh, late in the games. And uh, also for the sweeping, and it, if uh, you should be able to sweep very good, then you should be really fit, I must say. And right. Because to have all the power down on the eyes and also the frequency, if your aerobic capacity isn't good then the the frequency won't be good either because uh, it is uh, tougher than people think actually to sweep very effective so we can see it so easily and uh, I mean just their mood if they don't have the energy then uh, we can't build up a good uh, team dynamic because I like uh, if we have uh, one plus one should be more than two. It should be like three, like the synergies. I like each player to add more to the team 
than just a, as an individual, if you understand what I'm saying. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, what I was thinking there was even from a you know a, a muscular perspective, like you talked about sweeping. But I was thinking even at the at the launch point, you know, you crouch down, and you know if you can't maintain that kind of physical stability, even at that point, um, you know, your ability to <clears throat> to slide the rock uh, becomes um, uh, encumbered and, and it, you might not be able to just even perform the, the real basics of the, the sport at your best. Um, mm. And the reason I'm saying that is again, I, for people that aren't familiar with, with curling, um, it doesn't look like a lot would go into S and C, but as you said, you know, being able to sweep for that long and that, that frequent, <laughs> and especially over a, an entire bond spiel, um, and do it effectively is quite challenging. Oh yeah. And when I played, I mean, Canada is number one in curling in the world. I mean, it has so many curlers and so many great teams. So we spend a lot of time in Canada when at the beginning of the nineties and we were so impressed with them. And then my team started to think, how can we beat those guys? And, uh, because they play games like every week against very, very tough opponents. And we didn't have that chance in Sweden. So we didn't get that uh, good experience for good competition against say, good opponents. And then uh, we decided to spend a lot of time in Canada. So we, as one of the first European teams, we spent the first year, three months in Canada in a row. But we also realized, okay, uh, the Canadian teams at that, that time wasn't uh, great in SNC. So we worked really hard in the SNC. And uh, our results got better the, the more fitter we got. So that was interesting to see. And uh, then uh, some other teams in Europe follow uh, what we did too. So uh, European teams were more fit like the Canadians. But now the Canadians catch up. Like quite a long time ago now for the same so, so if you compare the top team in the world in curling now like in 25 years ago it's a huge difference yeah and let's talk a little bit about the mental performance as well because it's a i mean it's a game of strategy and angles and and physicality as you said with with sweeping so what are teams doing now in terms of mental performance? Because everyone's talking about it and it's, you know, found its way into the business world as well in terms of, you know, training your brain and, and being able to manipulate your state. And, you know, um, people now have, you know, strategies for getting themselves to sleep or, uh, you know, a lot of people are meditating now. So what's happening in the mental performance world in curling? We, our team was also pretty early in that, and we started with a mental coach uh, in mid 90 and mm. it helped us incredible much, I must say, because oh, sure. some, some uh, people uh, are against them because they think they're like uh, gonna do something with the brain, but it's not. It's just a resource to help the players to think clearer and make up uh, their own structure for them how they and uh, how that can uh, affect them in their performance so uh, i would say now most top teams have uh, they either have their own mental coach or at least they have uh, connections their olympic committee their sports association might help them uh, to find one and it can uh, be both the uh, individual talks or uh, working with the entire team at the same time and uh, i must say m myself i believe it's very very important and were you the beneficiary of those mental performance coaches when you were playing that was still when you were active yeah it was Mm. So we started with that uh, like in mid-90s and then uh, I won the first uh, gold at the World Cup Championships in 97. So um, that person was a great help for us to achieve that. And usually I also say like this, 
what if you could, at the end of your career, no matter sport, what if you could take all that experiences and wisdom you have at the end of career to take it back when you were a junior? Can you imagine how great so many athletes all around the world could it have been then? Because we can see so many juniors around no matter sport that, oh, wow, they have a lot of talent, but they don't really know how to use it. And they are left like by themselves. If that person had the knowledge at, as a junior, that person could help themselves a lot. So we need to invent that. <laughs> <laughs> we do. Maybe you and I can work on that after the show because <laughs> I, I, that was my story precisely. I, I was a, a high level junior, but I, I had too many mental barriers and I had my own mental barriers to performance. Mm. And, and I wasn't able to work with anyone that was able to remove them. So I, I get the sense if I was coming through now, I would be a much different player from when I was a teenager in the you know, late nineties trying to make it into the AFL. Um, yeah. I, if I had a, a mental performance coach, I think it, I would have been able to get into these, you know, flow states and, and things like that, that I wasn't able to. So I instead uh, was crippled by paralysis by analysis and, uh, and that impacted my performance. But yeah, I'm right there with you. It, it, and that's why I like to talk about it more often is because I think we need to start to develop these systems to, to get these, um, yeah, that education and knowledge and, and, pass it down to people younger and younger and you know i, I know there are school systems and, and companies doing that now where they're you know teaching these skills to elementary school kids which is is great mm -hmm. uh, and let, let me ask you as well like wh what have you taken for yourself that you've continued on through your life and, and even into your coaching now in terms of making sure that you're at your your optimum so do you still meditate do you reflect like how do you make sure that you're making the best decisions now that you're not an athletic worker, but you're, you're still a knowledge worker. My method is running. I'm a mm. passionate long distance runner and right. it helps, helps me so much. I mean, if, if you're tired or it has been a tough uh, competition or whatever, um, the, each person needs to have their own method to uh, recharge. Well, first of all, get rid of all uh, stuff in your brain you're thinking about and also to recharge you can meditate you can uh, read a book uh, whatever but uh, for me it is uh, going out for a long run that oh helps me a lot if i am tired then i need to go out to, for a run because then i know i both my body and my brain will be refreshed after that and then uh, i'm thinking more clearly and it's helps me take decisions sometimes i've even decided when i had tough decisions to take and i wasn't really clear about the answer then i decided to go out for a long run maybe 30k or so and uh, to solve this uh, decision and every time uh, i got an answer uh, for myself uh, uh, once i was back home again so it that works a lot from here it's funny you say that. I'm exactly the same. I make most of my good decisions whilst running, and like I spend it writing emails back to people just in my head, and you know, mm -hmm. trying to formulate uh, writing and yeah, get through uh, really tough decisions. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and to your point, I think another thing that's really interesting and not talked about very often is that that decision point when you are tired to say, I'm going to go for a run because it's actually going to energize me. Um, mm. I think that is really, I think that is true. And then I think it's really key for us to start to use the words properly. Like we kind of see exercise as a drain on us. Um, I'm talking about society in general. Um, mm. Like going for a run is, is thought of as it's going to drain my energy but it's actually the other way around. If you find yeah. what's right for you, it's, it's an energy giver, not a drainer. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm trying to the, 
teach the, our athletes about that too and uh, that you need to find your way to uh, recharge and get or get uh, your energy and because if we play a competition uh, then the days are like get up have breakfast uh, pre-game meeting we have game uh, debrief and, uh, and lunch then a nap and then we start all over again for the second game of the day so i say sometimes the best thing is not to take a nap of course you need to take naps uh, once in a while but i would also like them to be more activated uh, they can go whatever go bobbling for fun or uh, <laughs> in just something or take a run easy run and um, some uh, athletes they are do understand what i mean but i would say in general general uh, they don't really understand the, the importance of that i'm not talking here in, but in beijing now I'm, it's my experience uh, both as a player and coaching over the years yeah I agree with you in terms of my observations just in general across across sport, I'd say. Um, a lot aren't sure and just kind of go along with whatever's being done um, rather than making sure that they're at their optimum. But uh, we'll get there. Mm. Um, so as I mentioned at the start, you know, going through writing this book about kind of the human experience of coaching, I wanted to ask you about your move to China and not the specifics, but kind of the more, uh, the more personal or, or human elements of that, like moving to a new country or going to a new country to coach. What was that experience like? Because, you know, just at a really basic level, you've just got the language barrier, you've got you know, new culture, all of that kind of stuff. But, you know, for you, you've got family and you've got your own performance and you've got, you know, going flying back and forth between Europe and China. But what has that experience been like for you as you've gone through it? Well, first of all, uh, uh, you need to be curious about everything. And uh, if yeah. you're curious, uh, then you don't see, uh, let's say you're not curious, then you're not interesting to try to understand the culture facing you. And uh, then, uh, you can't really accept how it is. So to me, it's important to be curious. And uh, let's say if I see a Chinese and they do something that um, that surprised me, good or bad, I'm not trying to have emotions about that. I'm trying to see behind what is the reason they do like that. Because if I will be good in that, then it's so much easier to coach them too. And then I had some friends, uh, I have a specific, uh, uh, at least one uh, close friend to me. He was the national coach for the China's cross-country uh, national teams over an Olympic cycle. So I talked a lot with him about this. So he helped me also a lot. So uh, I think I was well prepared going here and... Uh, I adapted really well, and I must say I like the Chinese here and uh, the way how they work. And of course, it's tough for my family. But the last season, I was flying back and forth like every second week. So of course, due to the jet lag, that was tough. But now it seems like I'm gonna be here for quite a long time due to the Corona situation and um, the lockdowns that starts in Europe. So um, I take it like day by day and. That, how it is there but i miss my family of course but i know my contract is also over the olympics 2022 and uh, then my contract is over so uh, i i'm uh, chatting with my family well like every day so they understand it and um, they were supposed to come here too but due to the corona they can't Mm -hmm. But uh, me personally here, uh, it's all fine and uh, we're very busy during the days, but uh, we also have outstanding facilities here. The, the area we are in, uh, we have like five gyms here and we have, I don't know how many treadmills and uh, different sports are uh, 
living together too. So, for example, yesterday I watched the women's hockey team play against a junior men's team here. So it was fun. So just to be try to see what you can, and I'm enjoying the days here for sure. That would be fascinating. The what you said there about remaining curious. I think, I mean, I wrote that down. Thank you for that. It might be one of the best lines that's ever been said on this show. But um, <laughs> uh, yeah. So let's keep talking about that because where others won't, like my, my whole uh, concept uh, for, you know, leadership in general kind of comes from that idea of remaining curious. <clears throat> and specifically, you know, I, I look at both business and sport and what they can learn from each other. Often they're treated quite differently. There are some overlaps, but, you know, business world kind of sees sport as like motivation essentially is what they can learn, which I disagree with. But, um, you know, I also like to learn from other sports and, and other businesses and academia and pull in from all these different worlds. You mentioned, you know, you were just watching hockey. Like what would you learn from as a curling coach, just sitting there and, and watching something like a hockey game, either about your coaching or something to prepare your athletes? Like what would you pick up? Just like how the players and the coaches interact together, yeah, and like uh, the warm up when they go out there on the ice, for example, uh, how uh, do they do do it, and how is their mood? Are they focused, or when are they on and off in focus? For instance, uh, everything, all the relations I can see out there is important. And uh, I must say, uh, once again, uh, if you are curious about stuff like that, you will so easily pick up something you can think of yourself to, to bring to your own sport. And uh, usually about the, to be curious, I also say uh, players need uh, to be curious about the different ways uh, to like training or nutrition or whatever because i usually say if you do what the the top team or top athlete in the world are doing then you can uh, at best be second in the world you need to do something extra or something new to pass the top uh, team in the world so you should never be uh, afraid uh, trying new things and, uh, but you should also be humble and uh, realize that if you try something new, okay, this wasn't dead then. No, at least you tried it. Um, let's go back to the normal way. And uh, maybe later on, you can uh, find something new. Yeah, I was really fortunate to spend about two years interviewing the best endurance athletes in the world. And... Uh, you know, Ironman champion and and people that were doing winning ultra marathons and uh, you know channel swimmers and what I learned from that process was that none of them had really any of that preparation stuff nailed down. They were always observing others and looking at what's new and and trying to put the puzzle together for themselves. And what I learned from that was that yeah like it is all this game of kind of tinkering with what you're doing and then trying to get to the next level and you think about it, it sounds really weird people that are winning ironman races like full distance ironman you would imagine that they would have everything absolutely dialed they would know exactly what nutrition exactly what their training plan is they would you know have their their psychology all, all sorted but they're all kind of always tinkering and I found that really, really interesting just observing as, a, as an outsider. Um, and it, it made me rethink my own coaching practice a little bit in that, you're right, it's, it's always a work in progress and there's always curiosities that you can think about and consider and you know, training drills that you can add or yeah, some sort of new thing that you see somewhere else or you just imagine or you just think would be beneficial. And so it's, it's never really static, is it? Mm -hmm. No, and I must also say, like you mentioned, that like Ironman and uh, channel swimmers, uh, I found myself uh, when I was uh, 
well, coaching in seven different sports that individual sports, they are more like their own coach. They understand the importance of a great planning and preparation. So they might not even need to have everything uh, written down, but back in their head somewhere, they understand what it takes and make a good preparation for it. And usually those kind of uh, extremes, they are, they train so hard. So, uh, and so much so they it's like a lifestyle for them too then going back to team sports then it's more like how shall you as an uh, individual uh, behave in a team and adapt to the team and etc so each sport is very specific in that let's stay on that team idea um, within curling because it is a little bit different from a lot of other team sports in, in that sense. How do the teams come together in, in curling? This is also very interesting. For instance, when, uh, when we played, uh, three of us four in the team, we had been best friends since we were two years old, actually. So we grew <laughs> up together. So that was actually amazing. And then I started to play when I was 11 and we played together for 25 years. So we won both the world junior and uh, the men's uh, world championship. So that was, that was pretty unique, I must say. Now, uh, when it's an Olympic sport, then uh, this has changed a lot too. Because in the tradition, it was like, okay, shall we guys start a team together? But now we can see, especially here in, uh, in Asia, that uh, when I started here, for instance, I got many, many players in the program. And we had like a selection with different criteria. And uh, so when we were done with that last year, we, were, we had 48 players and we created the teams based on uh, their skills, uh, personalities, and etc. And now we're down to 20 players. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's it's been very interesting. So now, it, like in soccer, I mean, it's not a bunch of guys from the, the childhood that are in the professional teams. It's getting the, like this more. It's similar in curling to us those kind of sports. Yeah, I think in correct me if I'm wrong here, but in in Canada, the model was always you have these provincial teams so they they yeah come through and win their state championship and then they kind of progress but that could actually become the national team so it would be you know a team from alberta for instance that would win their way all the way through and then they would represent canada is that right mm. yeah that's right yeah, yeah so there there was a lot more of that childhood friendship kind of thing um in the past and i i think it's starting to morph a little bit more towards these engineered teams where it's yeah you know getting the best people at, at all the different positions and putting them together it's interesting to watch yeah but in canada i mean there's still so many great players and teams there so mm-hmm. i believe it will be the same in canada for a long time still so now in their cities and the provinces the teams that are successful there are very, very good. So when we they had the Scottish and the Briar in Canada, we know that from most provinces, the teams are really, really good. And the winner goes to the Worlds. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, they also had the Olympic uh, process, the qualification there. So uh, the players won't be handpicked really for the Olympics or the Worlds for a long time even. From now, I would say they will stick with that. But uh, when more countries are getting better and better, um, maybe Canada will start to think if they shall stick with this or if they would make a change. I know there's a lot of tradition in curling in Canada, so a lot of people are also afraid of doing it like the Asian way because yeah. that will destroy the club curling. That is very, very important. So. I have full respect for that. Yeah, me too. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> and having seen the, that tradition up close, uh, it, it is marvelous. It's um, it's a really, really unique sport. Let's uh, 
just go back to the the team dynamic stuff for you as you put together these teams and you're talking about you know trying to judge personalities and skills and and put these teams together how do you foster that because yeah like at the, once you get to the top level you're playing the canadas and the swedens of the world and you're playing against teams that have that connection you know they've they've been team alberta for you know, 25 years or, or like you were talking about where it's your best friends from your childhood. And there's, there's that immediate connection between that Canadian team and that Swedish team. How do you try to foster that within the teams that you're putting together so that, you know, when it comes crunch time in the world championships or the Olympics, you know, your teams are coming together rather than uh, falling apart. We're working, uh very much with this in different ways. We have, have like a classroom sessions, for instance, uh, about this. And uh, we also have, uh, it's good here, I must say, because uh, in this area, I mean, uh, it's closed for, uh, so people can't come in here. So everyone lives here 24 mm. seven. And um, so they know each other really well. And they also share room together. So, that is a big advantage for us. But we also try to make them understand. For instance, we had uh, last week, I had a, like a visualization uh, speech to some teams here to make them understand uh, how they should, can well look in pictures in their head, how it will be going out uh, there on the ice in the Olympic venue you can feel the pressure. How can you get uh, your confidence back if you start to lose it? What can your teammates do? So we work a lot with that too. So um, it's a living process, daily living process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is what I'm big on in general is, is this connection. I think there's, we in sport especially, we can focus so much on the cause and what I mean by cause is, you know, the, the ultimate goal, winning Olympic gold. But that's not going to get you through those peaks and troughs like you talked about. It's not going to get you through the, the swings in confidence. Like wanting to win the Olympics, everyone wants that. So if you, if you lose your confidence in the middle of the tournament, just wanting to win isn't going to be enough. And particularly in team sports, I think we, we need to spend a lot more time on that connection piece. I think you need cause and you need connection. And a lot of teams are starting to do that now. They'll spend a lot more time not practicing skills, but actually practicing like how to communicate and how to help each other and, and you know, what someone needs in, you know, when they do lose their confidence or, um, you know, how to talk to people and really individualizing um, so, that, <clears throat> so that it's a true team effort uh, to keep everyone at a, at a really high level. And like you were talking about earlier with, that, uh, you know, with mental performance, I think that's the big X factor now is that the connection between all the different players on a team. I think that's a, a real multiplier for a lot of teams or is going to be in the future. Mm. I do agree with you totally in this. Um, we just to watch some movies, say, oh, I can get goosebumps uh, from the, that, like, um, college teams and no matter sport and how they get together and finally they win at the end of the season and uh, oh, i love those kind of movies because to me it, that shows how important it is to support each other um, you're never bigger than the team itself mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah they, are, they they tend to be quite cheesy movies but they're, they're very good at their core aren't they the the message underneath uh, I just want to ask you one last thing. Um, talking or going back to your curiosity and, and being curious about things, what are you curious about now? Uh, and maybe something outside of sport that you've been learning about or, you know, you've had a, a bit more time now that you're kind of uh, stuck in the one location. Is there anything from outside sport? Have you ended up, you know, watching something on Netflix or Wikipedia, or you know, what have you learnt about from outside of curling? Well, uh, actually, when I, I had the opportunity 
sort to save over three weeks quarantine here. So it was a lot on Netflix, actually. It was very, very boring. I had nothing to do. <laughs> so then uh, I was watching The Game Changer and how this guy changed uh, his diet and uh, like food-based, uh, well, uh, it was uh, just food-based uh, um, stuff every day I was eating instead of meat and uh, etc. And uh, one of the reasons was because that you can get rid of inflammations in your body. And then I decided I will try that myself, and uh, I did. And now I'm I've been working really hard on my runs. Now I'm also taking part of this uh, running program with the players that we have. <laughs> and I must say, I feel fresher. So I would like to learn more about that. So um, that's what gives me energy now. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, yeah, uh, I'm fascinated by that stuff as well. I spent a couple of years as a full vegan. Mm-hmm. And, and more than anything, it was just interesting to see what my body could not couldn't do um, uh, over that time and... And the reality was uh, I played two full years of Aussie rules football, which is a very physically demanding sport um, as a, you know, as a full vegan. And yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated by that kind of thing as well Yeah, and trying it on yourself. Mm, absolutely. And I'm not trying to convince my players here because we have nutritionists in the program, but uh, I'll do it for myself. And uh, yeah, so far it's, I just love it. I, even uh, <laughs> My wife started when I said, oh, I found a new thing now. And she tried it and she also loves it, actually. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll have to check in next time and see how it's going. I'll, I'll have you back on the show and we'll, we'll do a recap. <laughs> yeah, we look forward to that. <laughs> Paya, if people wanted to follow along with you or, or your team or uh, what you're doing with the, the curling team, where can they find you? Where can they follow you? Oh, we don't have an, like an official channel. Uh, it's easiest to find me on Facebook. Just uh, search for my name, Paya Lindholm. And uh, once in a while, I have some updates there. That's the easiest way. Wonderful. Paya, this has been awesome. Thank you. Uh, I've learned an absolute ton. I've taken a, a couple of pages of notes of things <laughs> you've said. So, uh, appreciate you passing on some of your knowledge and expertise to me and uh, and also the audience as well and uh yeah good luck with everything that you're doing there i'm i'm fascinated to follow along and, and you've got a new fan uh, here in canada <laughs>